Thank you, Zach, and all who have been helping out with music. And uh, I'm grateful that the, the number one thing that you hear at Clayton Valley Church when it comes to our music is the congregation singing. And it's a beautiful thing. It's not, it's not you know, because the people that we have up here are people we don't want to hear. It's because we want to focus on the Lord together and emphasize the fact that there's no audience present in this building. There's one audience, the Lord himself. And, uh, and we're, we're all before him singing and receiving from him and drinking deeply of him and becoming more satisfied in him as we, as we see him more together and, and grow together in him. Uh, on, on February 22nd, 1911, a guy named Gaston Hervu climbed the Eiffel Tower to test a new parachute for pilots. And he checked the wind and he kind of took a nervous breath and he began to test and, and his silk parachute filled with air on its way down and just sort of safely landed. He, and the thing about it is, is Hervu did not test the parachute with himself in the parachute wisely, right? He had a, he had a dummy there, a 160-pound test dummy. And, uh, and so as he tested it, everyone applauded. It was wonderful. But there was one critic, a guy named Franz Reichelt. And he was an, an Austrian tailor who was actually making a parachute of his own. And so Reichelt, you know, he, he posed for pictures. He went before the press and he said, you know what? I'm so convinced of my device that I'm not going to use a test dummy. I'm going to jump myself in the parachute. And uh, as he's working the press... Eventually, here, have you heard about it? And he confronted him and he said, hey, for technical reasons, this is not going to work. This is a bad idea. Don't do it. Don't go. And the guy just got in a heated argument with him and just walked away. And you see, uh, with, with modern parachutes, there's a certain ratio of square feet of fabric that needs to be deployed along with the, the height. And for most of them, it's 700 square feet of fabric and it needs to be deployed above 250 feet. And this guy's parachute used less than 350 square feet of fabric, and he was going to be deploying it at 187 feet. Just the math was bad. Other, other experts confronted him and, and, and said, don't do it. This isn't going to work. You're going to break your neck. He ignored the experts. He knew what he was doing. And he ended up jumping off into uh, the air, and he just careened to the ground and died. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a horrible story in the sense of, you know, why did this guy do it? But it's also a picture of self-sufficiency. And let's face it, our world is saturated with self-sufficiency. A few years ago, Google released a, 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 a database of over 5 million books published between 1500, the year 1500 and today. And you can type a search criteria into that uh, window there, and you can find words that have been used over the centuries. And based on this data, the New York Times columnist David Brooks offers what he calls the story of the last century, or last half century. And he said the first part of the story is the rise of individualism. So in the past 50 years, individualistic words have just been used in an increasing manner. And so uh, the year, words used more are words like self and personalized, and I come first, and different phrases are included in this. You know, I can do it myself. Uh, whereas before, earlier on, there were used, uh, words that were used much more often like community or share or band together or the phrase common good. And so there's a decline that Brooks would see in, in the second part of the story is the decline in moral virtue that came about from it. 
But when we find those terminologies and those terms being used in those books in a more increasing way, we come to realize that's the mindset, actually, of people. There's, there's a way in which it's about me and I can do it and there's a self-sufficiency and it's, it's lauded by some, it's misunderstood by most, but the fact is self-sufficiency is dangerous for everybody. Especially as we talk about God and the things of salvation. You know, there is such a thing as spiritual self-sufficiency. There's a way in which we can approach our life with God and we think, yeah, I've got it. I'm good. I know my stuff. I'm doing the deal. I've got my life together. And Paul's going to let us know today that having that perspective is one of the most dangerous places you can ever possibly be as a believer. He addresses that with us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I invite you to turn there. You see, back in chapter 8, you might recall, the Corinthians said this, we have all knowledge. We know. Later in chapter 12, the Corinthians are going to say, we've got spiritual gifts. And because of that, we've got it together. And this developed into an arrogance in them. There was a a smug, self-congratulatory, arrogant self-confidence, right? There was a way in which they were They were thinking, look at us. We are now beyond failing. And so Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 13. This is the word of God, and because of that, we want to receive it with that in mind. So let's stand and follow along as I read. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness Now, these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, And we're destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would grace us to understand from this passage the warning that comes from you, especially the warning against spiritual self-sufficiency. It's so dangerous. It's so destructive. And yet we so easily fall prey to it. So by your Spirit's might, please open our eyes, 
Help us to heed the warning here and help us to live in a way that is dependent on you and you alone. And may that flow through our lives in such a way that others would see and come to rest their hope exclusively in Christ, the risen one. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seat. So what is spiritual self-sufficiency? And, and I'm going to put forward this as a definition of it from this passage. Spiritual self-sufficiency is a declining sense of my need for God that stems from a misuse of his grace gifts. Okay? So it's a declining sense of my need for God that stems from a misuse of his grace gifts. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They had received knowledge from him. And what do they do? We've got knowledge. Later on, we'll see they'd received spiritual gifts of various kinds. And they, would, they would, and they would take those and go, see, well, I've got this gift. You know, I'm able to discern things. Uh, I, I speak in tongues. Um, I've got the, this prophetic thing going. I, I've got this other gift. So now I've got it together. Look at me. I'm doing it. And then as a result, that very gift from God, a gift of his grace, hence a grace gift, is now perverted and twisted. The very thing that should cause them to depend on God more, love God more, rest in him more, is twisted and now utilized in a way that demonstrates an independence from God, the very one who gave him that gift. It's very dangerous, as we'll see. And yet, we're also going to see that God provides a way to escape from spiritual self-sufficiency. That'll bring us a lot of relief. But what do we learn about spiritual self-sufficiency from from this passage? The the first thing would be this. Spiritual self-sufficiency can arise amid God's blessings. That's when it shows up. If you look at the very first section here in verses 1 through 5, Paul's saying, hey, remember our Old Testament brothers and sisters. Remember, look back at them. Look back at the Old Testament saints. Look at their lives. What happened? Well, well, they were rescued. They were saved. This is a depiction of the Exodus event. In in many ways, what we find Paul writing about here to Corinth and throughout the New Testament is in, in many ways what Jesus has done. He has brought about a new Exodus whereby we're rescued out of the kingdom and, and, and life of slavery to sin and brought into freedom in Christ. But here, the, the Exodus, people were, the people of God cried out to God under slavery to, in Egypt, and God took them out. And you'll see that first passage there, verse 1, he's saying uh, they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. You'll notice the word all, 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 all is used throughout this section, meaning every person there present was receiving all these blessings from God. God rescued them. God took them out. Uh, they, they were trusting him by faith. A pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And when you go through that account, you're going, that, that is such a beautiful thing. Why? Because they didn't know if they were going to move. It was sort of like they, they would be there, they would be camped, and then, oh, the cloud's there. Okay, we're not going. Oh, it's moving. All right, let's go. We're moving. It's up. Oh, we're staying. Just trusting God. But you also notice that they were, he says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And you're going, what on earth is Paul talking about there? Uh, well, literally, the word baptized means to be immersed. That's what happened there. So, he, so, so really, he's figuratively using this Greek word to describe how the Israelites 
a connection with an affiliation with Moses' ministry was something that they were completely immersed in. And, and, and then as he took them through the sea, the, the, he's talking about the parting of, of the Red Sea and God's people being delivered through that. And, uh, and you'll notice again that you know, they had to depend upon God for everything, not only when they were leaving, but when they ate and when they drank. And so verse three, they ate the same spiritual food. And that's, that's this reference to, to, uh, to the manna that came from heaven. They drank the same spiritual drink. They were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. And that, that's a beautiful account. Years ago, we were in Exodus. And many of you were not here for that. <laughs> but when we were there, uh, we, we really parked on that beautiful section where, uh, you know, the, the Israelites are complaining. And, and Moses basically goes before God and says, you know what? They're going to kill me at this point. <laughs> they've had it. But there's no water. Everything's dry. And they feel like they're going to die. What am I supposed to do? And God tells Moses what to do. And what does Moses do? He picks up his rod, which, which is, a, a, by the way, a symbol of justice and judgment there in that time period. That was when, when the leader would use the rod to demonstrate justice. And the elders gathered around Moses, and he called the elders to him, and they walked to this rock. And, and, though the, and, you, and you can kind of picture in that moment, you know, the people are seeing Moses pick up the rod, and they're like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. <laughs> We've been complaining, we're in trouble. And what does Moses do? Rather than deal with the people, he walks to this rock and he strikes the rock. And water flows. And Paul's telling us here that 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 picture is the rock is Christ. Christ received the blow of judgment in our place. And from him flow springs of living water. So that's the, the beautiful picture that we find and we look at that and we, we realize you know, the, the rock was Christ. It was, the rock was a picture pointing to what Jesus would do. Um, and so we're seeing the connection, the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The fact that, again, we've been brought into a new exodus in Jesus. And, and the spiritual food has been given and spiritual drink has been given and everyone's receiving these blessings. And yet, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. That's for sure. He wasn't. They were laid low in the wilderness. Think about it. Who, who entered into the, of that generation, who entered into the promised land? There were just two. Caleb was one. The name of the other one's leaving my brain right now, but I know some of you might know it. Yeah. Say it again. Oh, that guy Joshua. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, thank you. See, thank you. Good. Keep me on my toes, people. Keep me honest. That's good. Uh, but yeah, so only two. Moses didn't enter in. You think about that, and it's just wow. And so we, we, he, he, Paul brings that out, and he goes, "Okay, why is he talking about this?" And he tells us very clearly that this, this spiritual self-sufficiency that they have is not coming from understanding the gospel or understanding what God's done for them in Christ. No, it's actually coming from a very, very different place. So again, the first thing we see here would be that spiritual self-sufficiency that the Israelites 
depicted, and we're going to see that in a few moments, came in the midst of blessings. And in the same way, for the Corinthian church, their self-sufficiency, their attitude, we have knowledge, we have gifts, came from those blessings of knowledge and gifts. And the danger for us would be the same thing, that in the midst of God's blessings, we can have an arrogant, self-confident self-sufficiency that is completely against uh, the, the true nature of what Christ has done to rescue us and save us. Uh, and so again, we'll get into more of that a little bit later. But um, So spiritual self-sufficiency can arise amidst God's blessings. But secondly, spiritual self-sufficiency also breeds misdirected desires. We find that in verse 6. Look what he says. Now, these things happen as examples for us. So he's saying, why am I bringing this up? Because they were written down, they were recorded because, for our instruction. So that, there's the purpose of it, so that we would not, notice that word, crave. Evil things as they also craved. Um, you'll notice that the focus here is not simply so that we would not do the things that they did. That's not it. It's that, no, that deep down there are cravings, there are desires, there are longings that we have. And, and, and by the way, the longings themselves are not the problem. It's not the problem that they're craving. Notice it's that they're craving evil things. In many ways, we're designed to have those longings and desires. We don't want to be that, you know, give that message. Um, you know, sadly, in many, in many children's and youth programs around our country, it's sort of like, you know, there's this picture of, you know, in the world, you have allurement, and you have desire, and you have longing. And then, there's God. <laughs> As if, like, you know, any longings, that's not of God, that's of the world. God, no, the, the Bible would tell us we have longings, we have desires. The, the Greek word here is the same one that Jesus used when he said, I have longed, to his disciples, I have longed to celebrate the Passover with you. So the purpose is, you know, this sort of like, you know, non-emotional, we don't have any feelings or desires. No, if anything, our desires, when they're placed upon these worldly things, when we're craving evil things, our desires are actually being put to a place that can't, they can't be fulfilled. Uh, we're, 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 uh, we're aiming too low. We're, we're not living out what God's called us to be as he's designed us. We're settling for so much less. Uh, the, the phrase I love, and it's the John Piper phrase, and I, I think it's a very great way to put it, and you can look at the book Desiring God uh, by John Piper, a fantastic book, uh, but he calls it Christian hedonism. <laughs> Because the idea of a hedonist, right, is you're going out because of your desires. You're longing for something you want to fulfill. But this is Christian hedonism. It's the idea of going to God to fulfill those longings. And, and when you do that, when you pursue him, uh, you find that the, the, the longings are put in their proper place because they are to be fulfilled in Christ and in Christ alone. Uh, one thing I have asked that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, the psalmist says. We sang about it earlier today. To behold your beauty. That's a passionate phrase. God, I want to be near you. I want to be in your house. I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to behold your beauty. There is no beauty greater but here we find that these desires and these cravings are not after things that can actually fulfill or satisfy. Um, instead, they're, 
They're evil things. And so this, this spiritual self-sufficiency causes us to take God's gifts, forget that we need God, and then causes us to, in, in, instead of um, focusing on him and finding our fulfillment in him, we run to lesser things. And, and then that leads us to the third element of, of spiritual self-sufficiency. And that, that is, a, really, it's, it's those misdirected desires that leads to destructive sins. And, and Paul lists several out for us. Uh, he lists out idolatry and immorality and trying God and grumbling. And each of those has a corresponding Old Testament example. We won't have time today to, to go through all of them, but um, this idea of idolatry, it's really connected to, again, a misdirected craving or desire. And, and, and Israel, of course, committed idolatry constantly at different times. There were other times that she repented and then she didn't, but, but often, especially in, in those seasons of trying and difficulty um, and in captivity and other times, there were ways in which she did not um, demonstrate faithfulness to God, her, her husband. That's, that's really the language of the Old Covenant. It's, it's not simply the language of a legal arrangement. No, it's, it's a language of a, of a husband who has taken to himself a wife that he loves. And it's a faithful uh, a grace-filled uh, love relationship. And so rather than being a, a bride of fidelity to her husband, Israel went after other gods. And that's how idolatry is described. And, um, and so here the warning is, hey, don't, don't be an idolater, as some of them were. And, and then the description here, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's really from... Exodus chapter 32, and that's the golden calf incident. And if you'll recall what happened with the golden calf incident, well, Moses went up to Sinai. He's on top of Sinai. He's receiving the law, and, and Yahweh is demonstrating his grace for the people that he's rescued. And in the meantime, the people are back at the camp, and they're going, where's Moses? Where is he? I don't know. You seen him? I haven't seen him. He's been gone a long time. Yeah. He's been gone. He's been gone. He's still like, you know, days go by. Days go by. Where is Moses? He's gone. Oh, well, I guess Moses is gone. We've got to do our own thing. This isn't working. Apparently, things were not going according to the people's timetable. And sadly, Aaron, the priest, fell right into it with them. And so the, 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 the way uh, it's described is that they, um, in, in Exodus 32, the people tore off gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took it from them in their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a, a molten calf. And then they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And you can see what they're doing here. They're not, they're not saying, well, I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, just not worshiping God. I am, but I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping God and the calf. Like the calf is God. There's, there's a syncretism here. It's not out-and-out out denial. And so from their vantage point, it could be very well be, well, we're not completely dismissing Yahweh. We're just, we're just blending some things. Make it a little more acceptable. Make it a little more palatable. Make it a little, work a little better in our context, in our situation. And so really, idolatry often isn't a choice between two gods. Oftentimes, it's an attempt to serve many gods at the same time, multiple gods, uh, and, and we see it in, in, in modern times, too. You know, let, let's say hypothetically there's a man, he loves his wife, but there's someone else over there that he wants. 
And so if he's caught cheating on his wife, he might be remorseful about it. He might even claim that that he loves his wife. And probably to himself, he's thinking that he loves his wife. But the fact is he's living a life that says otherwise. And, and so, you know, and, and for us, there's many different forms of idolatry. If you've been around our church for a long time, we, we come back to this theme often because, frankly, the Bible comes back to this theme often. Idolatry is anything, sometimes even a good thing, that's been put in a place of becoming an ultimate thing. I must have this or my life isn't what it needs to be. And... Uh, I think when we admit that, sometimes we'll think, well, I'm, I'm really not that bad of an idolater. But you realize what you've just done? <laughs> if, I'm, if you're not that bad of an idolater, guess what? You're still an idolater. You're still engaged in putting something above God in your life. And sadly, on a functional level, if we're really honest, we need to admit that there are times when we have many lovers aside from God. We have given ourselves over to other desires. And so this type of idolatry is a, is a sharing or a fellowship or a participation um, or connecting with something that is really supposed to be exclusively for God. And, and Paul is saying here, that just can't be. And so when there's that sense of, 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 of having that divided heart or trying to bring two things together or, or pretend as though I'm really worshiping God here, but I'm really living like this over here. God, Paul, Paul is saying here, you, when you're living that way, you're essentially living a lie. And it's time to repent, to turn away from that. And so he goes on to describe how this looks when he talks about the next uh, area that this shows itself. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. That's really to commit sexual immorality. And so this happened in Israel's history at various times. Um, certainly at the, even at the golden calf incident just, just referenced. It seems like when Moses came down the hill, he came back in some ways to some kind of an orgy. And God was judging at that point in time. That's it. It's over. There are other times in Israel's history where this happens as well. Uh, there's, there's places in Numbers where people are um, dealing with God's provision in a way that, that was, was greedy and not grateful. There are other places where um, God had to discipline his, his uh, people because of uh, the way in which they... Um, you know, ignored his commands or by, again, embracing the paganism of the surrounding cultures. And so there's punishment that comes for idolatry, but there's also punishment that comes for the immorality that typically is associated with that. And uh, so in, in Exodus 32, there's uh, the figure of 20 to 24,000, depending on which, which um, account you're looking at it and people go, hey, wait, there's a discrepancy. What's going on? Well, you know what? Oftentimes in Scripture, when those numbers are cited, some might round up and some might round down. It depends. And so that's really the, the best way to account for some of those things. But the ultimate consequence we see here is that 23,000 or so fell in one day as a result 
of engaging in sexual morality. And why is Paul bringing this up? Well, again, he's saying, look, Corinthian church, here you are running around going to the temple of Aphrodite. You're thinking this is no big deal because you have knowledge. And he's saying, the God that we worship, the God who rescued the people from Egypt, the God of the Old Testament is the same God today that we worship. Don't trifle with him. Don't treat him flippantly or casually. Don't presume upon his grace. Don't be arrogant. Don't act so self-sufficient. He goes on to another example. In verse 9, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did. Uh, What is trying God? Uh, some, Some translations would say testing God. And, and it's, it's, it's really this idea of, of you're accusing God of doing wrong. So God, you didn't give me what I asked for. You know, I, I thought I was getting a land of milk and honey. And we're here in a desert. You can kind of see the Israelites doing that. But we do the same thing, don't we? Hey, it's not what I wanted. I, I thought I'd have a lovely family, a white picket fence. I thought I'd have good health. I thought I'd have financial stability. I thought I'd have a solid career path. I thought I'd have this this friendship that would last forever. And and so what do we do? We, in many ways, we, we, uh, we say to God, you know what, God, you, you didn't do right by me on this one. And, uh, and I I think we find here that this idea of, of trying God is where we're putting ourselves above him in a sense and saying, yeah, I know, God, that you're the ruler of the universe, but really you should put me in charge for just like two hours so I can straighten some things out for you. Um, Numbers 11. Go ahead if you wouldn't flip open to that. We've got time for this. Go ahead and go to Numbers 11, verse 1. Numbers 11, verse 1. And here we find a portion of an account that that talks about this trying God that Paul appears to be referencing here. Says this, Numbers 11, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and fire the Lord burned among them and he consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of that place is called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So you can see there, there's this, there's complaining, there's complaints happening. God, you're doing it wrong. God heard of it, God dealt with it. Now Moses intercedes. Boy, does that tell us something? We need an intercessor, Right? And certainly that's a picture of Christ and the one who, who intercedes for us. But verse 4, you'd think it would be all done by then, right? Okay, well, that incident happened. I'm sure from then on it was like, well, let's just zip it and... Nope. Verse 4. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. Notice desires, the same thing we're talking about here in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remembered the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. And there's nothing at all to look at 
Accept this manna. Funny how the memory plays tricks on you, yeah? Again, you kind of want to pause there and just go, uh, folks, you were completely enslaved in Egypt. Do you remember that? Remember, make the bricks, and then they took away the straw and doubled the quota of bricks. Remember that? Remember your people were dying in the heat of the sun? Maybe, remember that? You, you did not have your own life. You were slaves. You were oppressed. You cried out to God to be delivered. And now all of a sudden it's, wow, remember those melons and leeks and onions? Woo, those were, that was, those were the days. And we look at that and we go, really? Like, you, okay, short memory. Yeah, but brothers and sisters, what about us? Do you remember your days before Christ? Remember the things that you were chasing after? The pursuits you were after, the Bible, you know, describe those in First John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. You remember those things? But you were rescued. You were saved. You were delivered. You were brought to life in Christ. You were forgiven. You were given new life. And yet, is it not oh so easy to be tempted to go back to those things? When we go back, many times, what's at the core? What's at the bottom of that whole thing? God, you're not providing this thing, so I'm going to take this. You're not doing this, so I'm going to grab this. The consequence for them, they were destroyed by the serpents. Again, from the book of Numbers in chapter 21. God's judging the people. The, the serpents are destroying them. Now, he offers them hope and grace in that moment. Moses intercedes again, so we're reminded again, we need an intercessor. But not only that, he says, look to the bronze serpent on the staff that's been lifted up. And we find out later in the New Testament that, that very thing is a picture of Christ. That we look to him for salvation. He's the one lifted up, hung on the cross to forgive, to pay for sins in our place. And so we see people's sinfulness and we see our sinfulness. We see God's provision of grace and a savior. Paul now moves to a, a fourth example from the Old Testament, grumbling. Don't grumble as some of them did and I think we come to this part and we go, wait a minute, grumbling? Like, all the other ones were like, oh yeah, that's bad. Oh, that's really bad. And sexual morality, that's, that's bad. Telling God you're wrong and I'm going to fix the universe for you, just give me 15 minutes and we'll have it done, kind of thing. That's bad. But grumbling is in the same list? Yep. Uh, I don't know about you, but that causes me to just pause. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I can be like a professional grumbler, you know? It's so easy. I just turn on my computer, the homepage hits, and I've got grumble fodder for like a week right there in one screen. What is grumbling? Think about it. 
Grumbling, the, the word grumbling actually here in Greek is fasting. It's, it's what they call an, uh, an onomatopoetic word. In other words, it sounds like what it is. It's got a lot of G's in it. So it's this go, 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 you know, word. It sounds like grumbling, you know? Grumbling is giving audible expression to a sense of dissatisfaction. We're saying, God, we know better than you. We look in the face of his holy justice, his righteousness, his, his grace, his mercy. We look at all of that. We look at what he's done. We look at the history of redemption. We look at the gospel. We look at his plan of salvation. We look at all that he's done in creation and then in, 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 in redemption. And we see this entire thing unfolded for, before us. And we go, eh. I mean, is, is it okay to question God? Yes, the Bible would be very clear with that. It is, it happens. We see it in the Psalms. Uh, we see it in the, the book of Habakkuk. But it's different to grumble. That's a different thing. Questioning God is seeing things in the world around us, lamenting that, uh, uh, going, Lord, are you, are you with us? Are you here? And you look at Habakkuk and you're kind of going, man, Habakkuk's like, God, are you just an idle observer? Like, don't you see? But that's different than grumbling. Grumbling is, is, well, yeah, again, we're all aware of it, right? Have you been grumbling this week about the home you live in? The job you've got to return to tomorrow? Your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, your fellow student? Your circumstances? If only you had more money. If only you were taller. If only you were better trained for a different job. If only God had allowed you to live in a different way at a different time. It can go on and on and on. Grumbling is the opposite of contentment. And I love you. There's a a, a Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote a book, uh, and it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I love that book. I would totally recommend it if you can get a copy of it. Um, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The, the, The title says it all. It's Christian. I'm not just talking about contentment, you know, world contentment, whatever. I'm not talking about that. Amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, believers, contentment is a rare jewel. And uh, I, I, love, I love his definition of contentment. It reads as follows. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's contentment. Wow. What's in that definition? Well, there's a lot of things. One thing is a real clear view of who God is. You notice that? God's wise, fatherly disposal. What's he talking about? God is the one who's working in all of our lives. He is sovereign in his providence. Which means whatever is happening right now in my life, I need to see it as a part of what God is doing. God has a good purpose for me. God will take us through really challenging, hard, difficult times. And let's face it, we've been facing those things together as a church family. Some of us have recently lost loved ones. Some of us are dealing with with very serious health concerns. Others of us are facing financial difficulties that are pressing in on them. There's various forms of trials, but here's the thing. When we're cultivating, and by the way, it has to be cultivated, when we're cultivating Christian contentedness, 
we're seeing God's purpose, work, and plan. And if we can't see what that is, we're trusting him that there is one, whether we can see it or not. It's not random. The forces of the universe or a terrible economy or an awful job market or uh, cells that are, are, are functioning in destructive ways in, in your own body, whatever those things are, they are not happening apart from or outside of God's good purpose for his children. Uh, there's a way in which... Um, when he's describing the providence of God, Burroughs goes on uh, to, to, to bring out an important thing to consider. And I love how he puts it. Here's another quote. He says this, In a clock, stop but one wheel, and you stop every wheel, because they are dependent upon one another. So when God has ordered a thing for the present to be thus and thus, how do you know how many things depend upon this thing? God may have some work to do 20 years hence that depends on this passage of providence that falls out this day or this week. So we've got to step back and go, okay, Lord, rather than grumbling, help me to learn to see your work, your providence, your leading. It doesn't, it doesn't take the, the pain away. It doesn't mean, oh, there's, oh, everything's just fine. No, it's hard. But through it, God will show himself faithful. And we need to rest in the reality that, again, he will take us places we would never go to accomplish in us things we could never do on our own. The last thing we learn about spiritual self-sufficiency, not only can it arise amid God's blessings and does it breed misdirected desires, and not only does it lead to destructive sins, but thankfully and lastly, spiritual self-sufficiency can be escaped. We find that in the last section here. Notice he says these things happen as an example. They were written for our instruction. He's saying learn from that. Don't fall into those traps. Don't think of yourself as being uh, without need of the ongoing mercy and grace of God, that desperate need, clinging to Christ and his grace. And he calls them to, 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 to escape in several ways. First, we see in verse 11, he's saying, hey, remember the age you're living in. Corinthian church, you are at the end of the ages. He's saying that in the first century. Here we are at 21st century. So Clayton Valley Church, guess what? You're at the end of the end of the end of the end of the ages. So be ready. Be aware. Jesus is coming back, not just soon, but very, very, very soon. And, and so let that fuel your desire to not get f- sucked into these different sins or the deception that goes along with self-sufficiency. Remember, he's coming back. And then he goes on to say, so, so heed the warning. Look at this, verse 12. It's kind of a summary statement of the entire passage. Let him who thinks he stand take heed 
that he doesn't fall. One of the surest demonstrations of the, of, of the fact that we don't grasp the gospel is the assumption that we do. And one of the clearest demonstrations of the fact that we're very likely to fall into temptation is the assumption that we're past that, that we're over that. Now, when he says, take heed lest you fall, is he saying fall out of salvation, lose your salvation? No, that is not what he's talking about here. You can look at the flow of the argument. You see, these are believers he's talking to. And what he's saying is, as a believer, you can fall into grievous sin, especially when you are overtaken by the sin of self-sufficiency. That's what falling is. Uh, Later on in chapter 11, for example, he's going to talk about the Lord's table and the way out of the same self-sufficient arrogance they were abusing the Lord's table of all things and how because of that there were consequences that were coming into their lives. Sickness and for some, some death. In other words, the idea that God's taking you out of the world. You're, you're a believer, you're a Christian, you're a brother or sister in Jesus, but you're on a path of sin and God's going, you know what, I'm not going to let you go any farther in this. You're degrading my name before the unbelieving world. You're done, I'm taking you. There are other consequences that come because of sin. But it's not losing your salvation. That's not what he's saying. Let's be clear about that. And then he goes on in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Yep. Nothing that you or I have faced in terms of our temptations is like, well, this is unique. No one's ever experienced this trial before. Nope. It's just not true. It's not unique. We're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus, our great high priest, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And that, by the way, is not brought up to say, so Jesus did it better, so there. No, that's brought up in Hebrews to tell us our great high priest, the one who intercedes for us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who paid the price for our sins, he was tempted, but he didn't fall. Therefore, let our hope rest in him. Jesus never engaged in idolatry. He never was unfaithful to his heavenly Father. So our hope rests in his faithfulness, not ours. And yet, as we trust in him, as we rest in him, as we know him, our desire grows to follow him more, to obey him more. And as a result of that, we want to walk in a way that shows what he's accomplished and done. And because of that, Paul says, in order to do that, realize this, God is faithful. Notice that. He's not, I love it, it doesn't say, you know, no temptations overtaking is such a common demand. You had better be the one who is perfectly faithful or God will not allow you to. No, that's not it. He's saying God is faithful. And then notice this. In his faithfulness, he doesn't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Do you realize that? Every temptation that you have, everything you face, it is not beyond your ability to fight it as a believer. Isn't that wild? It doesn't always feel that way, does it? <laughs> But it's true. Whatever temptations you face, there is enablement given by him. And notice what he also says, but with the temptation, it will provide a way of, he will also provide the way of escape so you can endure it. There is always an escape route. 
I love the picture there because the picture is almost like a, a, you could see a, maybe a, a, a bunch of troops and they've been placed into a battlefield and they've been pressed back and now they're kind of feeling trapped. There's a ravine that they're in and, and it, the enemy is before them and they're not sure how they're going to survive this. And then all of a sudden it's discovered, hey, right here there's a route out through the mountains that the, the enemy doesn't know about this. Let's take it. Let's go. Let's escape. And that's what's given by God for us in each and every temptation. So we need to escape. How do we do that? We remember Christ's return. We take heed to the warning God's given us. And then we take the escape route. But we've got to be looking for it, right? I've never done this before, but I've heard a lot of people enjoy these escape rooms. It's an escape room. I guess you deliberately get locked into a room with family and friends already. I'm going, really? Okay, you know. But you get locked in and you got to find a way out. You know, you got to escape. Wouldn't it be strange, though, to go to one of those places and to not be looking for the escape route at all? Oh, you've been in that room a really long time. Kind of boring. Not really what the event was about, right? that happens though in temptation we're in the temptation we haven't been looking for the escape route we're not aware of the escape route and sadly we miss it we don't take it we need to learn to see it we got to learn to be alert towards that and to take it each and every time but the enemy of that is spiritual self-sufficiency and uh there is a, a way in which, sadly, God's, the very gifts God gives us can be twisted and misused. Um, and so Paul's going to address that more, and we're going to gather to talk about that more a little bit next week. But in the meantime, brothers and sisters, let's remember there's a route of escape. And let's take it every time. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would guide us into seeing these things more. Forgive us for the ways that we have acted as though we're self-sufficient, maybe even because of your blessings towards us. We pray you'd guide us to become the people, the men and women that you want us to be in you. We thank you for your ongoing provision of grace. We thank you for these things in the name of of our Lord Jesus. Amen. We now come to a time of the Lord's table, and and as we do, um, one of the main principles we find in this passage is that God is the one who conquers our infidelity by his faithfulness. That's really what we see there in verse 13. God is faithful. Uh, That's what we see throughout the Old Testament as as his people fall into these various forms of self-sufficiency and sin. That's what happens for Corinth as well, as Paul's going to describe in the future. That's what happens in our lives. And so, uh, if you haven't been able to grab the elements yet, go ahead and head into the foyer there. They're on the table, and you can get those. But in this moment, let's just go before God in silence and and ask uh, that he um, help us to see where we need to confess 
Uh, Maybe some of the things we describe today are areas in which we've been not honoring him. Maybe it's grumbling. Maybe it's uh, some other form of idolatry. But let's go before him now in silence and confess those sins to him. Lord, we confess to you the ways that we have committed idolatry. We have lacked faithfulness towards you, though your faithfulness is never, ever ending. We pray that we would heed the examples that we heard of today and that we would not somehow put you in a different category as if you were one God in the Old Testament and a different one in the New pray that we would not trifle with sin, that we would not act immorally, that we would not engage in idolatry, that we would not try you. We ask you'd forgive us for our grumbling. And we pray that we would see these things the way you do. Even as we confess these things, we remember what Christ did His food was to do your will. He never once grumbled in any way. And so as such, he's the one that gives hope to grumblers. And so we remember now his sacrifice in our place and we give you thanks for it as we now partake together. In the name of Jesus, the the lamb who gave his life to rescue sinners. Amen. Go ahead and open your cup and let's, let's take the bread together. The truth is, as he, he paid the price for our sins, we now are reconciled to God. And because of that, we have eternal life in him. God is committed to conquering our infidelity with his faithfulness. And because of that, we can endure. That's how the passage ends. We have this way of escape so that we can endure. And and that shows us a really realistic picture of our lives. We're not just taken out of the trial. We're not just transported away from it. Instead, we're going to be in the thick of it. We're fighting We're trusting God and his provision through it. It reminds us that it's not going to be easy, but we have been given the Holy Spirit and we are in a new place. We are new creatures. Old things have passed away. New things have come. So as we partake of the cup together, and go ahead and lift your lids off of those. As we do so, right before we do that, let's just for a moment, just give thanks to God. Let's rejoice in his provision and in the fact that when Jesus died on the cross and declared, it is finished, truly, it was. The veil was torn from top to bottom. We have free access to God. There is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor powers, nor depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you for your wisdom in the gospel. We thank you that no one is your counselor. We thank you that you accomplished what we never could. And Lord, now as your people, safe in your grip, infused by your spirit's power, we pray that we would remember and that we would rejoice that our sins are gone, forever buried in the depths of the sea. And now we're free to love you and love others in your name. So we praise you for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together.